think that the joint trauma system today, the DOD trauma system today is up to somewhere approaching 40 practice guidelines that stemmed from the efforts of learning from the people on the ground who had been fighting the war since 2003, capturing their lessons, writing that stuff down, putting it into guidelines, and then feeding it back out to their replacements. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Colonel Dr. Don Jenkins to War Docs. Dr. Jenkins is a pioneer trauma surgeon who helped develop the Joint Trauma System and the JTS Clinical Practice Guidelines. He performed his general surgery residency at Wilford Hall Air Force Hospital in San Antonio and then completed a trauma fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. You can read his full bio on wardocspodcast.com. In this episode, we discuss his leadership roles as Trauma Medical Director of the Iraq Theater of War in 2004, and later his role as the Trauma Director of the Joint Theater Trauma System for both Iraq and Afghanistan. You'll learn about some of the early challenges of battlefield care in Iraq and how these challenges differed from war in Afghanistan. We also discuss the importance of the implementation of whole blood on the battlefield and how the first clinical practice guidelines came to be, and much more. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon, Dr. Kevin Neary. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Colonel, Dr. Donald H. Jenkins to War Docs. Don, thanks for joining us today. Oh, hey, Doug, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. So, Don, tell us your story of how you joined the military and how you decided to pursue medicine. Well, I'll tell you, it uh, dates back to my uh, childhood days. I grew up in a small coal mining town in Pennsylvania, and all of the places on our street, all the homes, were occupied by veterans or widows of veterans. And it was a sort of an unspoken norm that one would serve one's country. Those that had come before us had done that as, as silly as it might sound. There's a certain sense of patriotism. I can recall distinctly the bicentennial parade through our town with all of the folks from the mayor on down sort of dressing up in period garb, etc. Our schools in this Polish mining town were commemorated to Polish generals who helped General Washington and the Revolutionary Army to get our freedom from Great Britain. And the sense in the community was that with the Vietnam War raging, watching that on television every night with Walter Cronkite narrating, that one would serve one's country. And medicine was a natural calling, having a mom who had been a nurse for quite a long time. And going to the military medical school there in Bethesda was really quite honestly, the experience of a lifetime. I had visited a couple of schools in Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C. No one held a candle to what USU had to offer. And at one point during my general surgery internship, following that, the U.S. invaded Panama and Manuel Noriega was plucked out of Panama. I stood in a hangar at Kelly Air Base as a GMO 
and decided at that moment that trauma surgery was for me because that was the ultimate job for a military physician was to take care of the combat injured. And that's how I got down this pathway. So you finished USUS, you did a surgical internship and then did a general medical officer. How many years did you do as a GMO? Just just two years at, at Kelly Air Base, but I learned how to be a doctor learned how to learn from our advanced practitioners. Every, everyone around me was a PA or a nurse practitioner. I learned to work with a team of folks that would potentially be deployed together. And it didn't hurt that it was at Wilford Hall when they had a, a hospital that was a trauma center where we took trauma on a daily, regular basis in preparation for wartime activity. We've, we tried to spread that over the years to other venues, some with success, some with less success. But I think that the model is there today with Brook Army Medical Center sitting on the San Antonio Military Medical Campus here in, here in San Antonio. So some of our listeners may not realize that back in the day, Wilford Hall was a level one trauma center. And in partnership with Brook Army Medical Center and University of Texas, San Antonio, and covered everything. So tell us a little bit about your general surgery residency experience at Wolford Hall. How was that? Sure. So we did about 15 months of trauma during, during that time frame. We had the honor and privilege of having a graduate of that general surgery program come back to be the two-star in charge of that program to go on to be the surgeon general. And the PK Carlton was that was that individual, and he really wanted to not only maintain Wilford Hall as that trauma center, but to expand that capability to other entities around the, around the globe. There was a, sort of a little mini experiment at Ben Taub in Houston back in the 98-99 timeframe with John Holcomb in the in the lead with the military Ken Maddox on the civilian side to set up those rotations and became the sort of the initial model for the, the programs that exist today, several of which have been around for quite some time, Baltimore Shock Trauma at Ryder in Miami and at LA County, and some other fledgling efforts that are afoot. The, the, the most amazing thing to me is that like many of the things that we have done in medicine, it's back to the future. Right. So we were standalone programs, the Army, the civilians, the Air Force. And then at some point it was realized that we did not have the patient population, thanks to TRICARE and other endeavors to get our beneficiaries access to healthcare on a more ready basis, that we, we sided up with the civilians at UT. And there was about a decade of T Air Force combined graduates that then shifted the alliance to the Air Force and the Army here in San Antonio. And now the redux is complete because we're back to where we started. We've got two full-time residents from the Air Force. I think they're now first, second, and third year. And we host all of the military residents over one through four. Our residents freely interchange with them on the civilian side. The fellowships are combined so that our fellows and military fellows spend time at each other's programs. 
And thankfully, our research interests are quite common. So that is very helpful when it comes to answering questions that come up from the, the combat zone you can't answer in the combat zone because of limitations related to, to research. And so, so to that end, things like whole blood, whole blood in the pre-hospital setting, those are things that we consider strengths. And as we've heard, our faculty have some interchange as well, and that we embrace that, we welcome that. We interviewed two military folks today for potential fellowships with us, as well as two civilian folks. And we would love to have any and all of those people join us because I think the more that we do together, the synergy that we have, the more ready that we are as a nation, the experience that the military brings with them to these mass casualty incidents and system development are really paramount to a successful response in times of disaster in this country. So you completed two doctoral fellowships in 1997 and 1998, both at the University of Pennsylvania. One was in focused abdominal sonography and trauma, also known as FAST, and the second was in trauma and surgical critical care. First, tell us what a FAST is and why at that time you dedicated a year of additional training to this. So it was a novel. It was brand new. And uh, there were a lot of naysayers out there. In fact, my, my mentor at the time was a little skeptical about the technology. And the first FAST exam that he did in a hypotensive patient resulted in an exploratory laparotomy for cirrhosis and ascites and had nothing to do with, with injury. And so the program was almost shut down at that point. But I got the great opportunity to work with folks like Heidi Frankel and Peggy Knudsen, Don Trunke on some of those aspects and have maintained a a sort of a, if there is such a thing still today, I think there is a national credential in ultrasound, only to see that blossom, to see our emergency medicine colleagues take this sort of to the to the next level. We not only incorporated FAST exam into, into what we do, we bought the first, those portable rechargeable ultrasound machines to take with us in the five-person backpack surgery team that the Air Force had put together. But then we also trained in our residency program in the Air Force, again, under General Carleton's uh, tutelage in ultrasound-guided breast biopsies, as a, for instance. And so we have now fellowship-trained uh, folks in many disciplines uh, using ultrasound for the purposes of diagnosis and potentially treatment. The, uh, the trauma critical care piece I thought was paramount to becoming the best trauma surgeon that one could be. There's a lot of folks out there that did not either have the opportunity or avail themselves of the opportunity to do that, that I emulate, that I respect, and, and I wish could be more like them in terms of the ability to be a, a straight up old fashioned general surgeon. And there were a, a lot of folks around when we were starting the Ben Taub program and the other programs I mentioned earlier that said, really a general surgeon is, is a trauma surgeon, should be a trauma surgeon. And while that was true in their training paradigm, I think that has shifted somewhat. One of the interviewees uh, today was asking me when I'm there on call, as a trauma fellow at night, will I be able to use the robot? And I said, maybe we haven't done that. Maybe you're at the cutting edge of something that I just can't imagine or envision down the road, but uh, let's talk. Who knows? Who knows what will happen in the future? So when you were doing your trauma fellowship, your Air Force 
medical career to this point had seen the Gulf War, but really not too much as far as trauma, combat, casualty care on the battlefield, taking care of a lot of injuries. And that was to change pretty shortly after 9-11. Tell us about how your Trauma Critical Care Fellowship prepared you for that first deployment. And were there any knowledge, skills, abilities that were missing from your armamentarium that you wish you had had when, when you got to your first deployment? I'll tell you that USU prepared us well. So from an operational perspective of understanding what a nine line is and how to command a, an element of, of medics was first and, and foremost, it, the tropical medicine bit was really important. The, not only the training, but the materials supplied to us from infectious disease and tropical medicine to the NATO emergency war surgery handbook. Those were all in the bag when I, when I left. We left San Antonio on 9-11 with a group of folks and traveled to McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey. We came back a, a week later and deployed forward yet again, 36 hours later. To the best of my knowledge, I was the first surgeon on the ground in the combat zone as we prepared for the invasion into Afghanistan. Having been at Wilford Hall and been part of the development of the five-person backpack surgery team, the one-tenth hospital that EMED's initial foray into expeditionary medicine for the Air Force was really important. And you don't get as a physician, maybe even more especially as a surgeon, the importance of logistics, that if you don't understand, if you don't command logistics, you are destined to fail. We were on the ground for about 10 days, and we were basically seeing a lot of primary care kind of things, waiting for this inevitable invasion. And the, we went to the supply cabinet to get out some more penicillin for this desert cough that people were having, only to realize that we were out of penicillin. And we didn't have a pharmacist, and there was nobody dedicated to the logistics of pharmacy. And we looked left and looked right and said, we're all to blame for this. We need a system for this. That's And that's sort of trial and error as to how those things go. We ended up taking care of about 56 casualties in the early going. The Marines took a foothold with special forces in southern Afghanistan, established an airhead there. War moved away from us, and we didn't see any more combatant casualties at that juncture. But we learned a lot of lessons. You can drill, you can practice, you can test, you can go to Camp Bullis, you can go to Alaska in February and test out the cold weather capabilities of a field hospital. But until you actually start taking the casualties, you really don't know what the shortcomings are, despite all the best planning. And so we cataloged all of that. We took it back to the Surgeon General, said we need to do this better, this better, this better. These things are redundant and uh, seemingly unnecessary to us. And we, in real time, were fixing the system of care as we, kind of like, what's that Air Force uh, phrase? You're, you're building a plane while you're flying it. In Iraq, from 2004 to 2005, you served as the Trauma Medical Director for the 44th Medical Command. Tell us about this experience and what you learned about the military trauma system. 
Sure. So it started with the 332nd Air Expeditionary Forces when the Air Force Theater Hospital was set up in Balad. First time an Air Force Theater Hospital was set up since Vietnam. And I was the lead surgeon in that organization. We established that as a surgical organization because the stateside way of doing things was more about bureaucracy and less about caring for injured patients and combatants. And so what we ended up doing was learning a lot about how the system worked and things wrong with the system. There was a lot of communication capability, but that information was not getting through to the hospital. So if you go back to the, for those who would remember the television series, the movie MASH, uh, we literally knew the casualties were inbound when we heard the rotors on the helicopters. And you think about what it takes to deploy a force, execute a mission, sustain casualties, set up a casualty collection point, deploy resources to that place to get those people out of there and to medical care. And how the hospital could not be informed as a part of that was mind boggling to me. So those were a few of the things that we took down to General Granger as we moved from the 2nd Med Brigade to the 44th Medical Command. And we tried our best to take information, data that was being collected at the Institute of Surgical Research here at, at Fort Sam Houston, where they showed with no doubt that hypothermia doubled the mortality for any given injury pattern, uh, that heat hypothermic prevention and management was possible. And there were some makeshift ways of doing it, and there were quickly developed solutions to doing that. Frank Butler and company uh, from 96 on had been preaching about tourniquets. And when I got to the 44th Medical Command, who had spent the better part of a year planning for these endeavors to run the war medically for a year, to find out that they had no training at all in the field care of medicine, from tourniquets to not intubating patients, to firing back to rapid evacuation, was again, just a symptom of the bigger system issues that we had. We were advancing our ideas in the combat zone, but the doctrinal people were left behind. And so to take army nurses who were having to fly injured casualties from the north of Iraq in helicopters to the air hub to get them out of the country, they had no training in how to do that and work in that environment. You can't hear an alarm. The aircraft crew doesn't want you to have your monitors even turned on. So how do you operate in that environment? Well, that, that stuff had been worked out. And we had been teaching it to CCAT teams and, and some other folks. And just the doctrine had not caught up yet in real time to what we were doing in the war. So we wrote the first clinical practice guidelines based upon hypothermia prevention and then DVT-PE prevention. I think that the joint trauma system today, the DOD trauma system today is up to somewhere approaching 40 practice guidelines that stemmed from the efforts of learning from the people on the ground who had been fighting the war since 2003, capturing their lessons, 
writing that stuff down, putting it into guidelines, and then feeding it back out to their replacements. You do not need to learn this again. You do not need to reinvent the wheel. These guys figured this stuff out. This is how they did it. This They were this successful. Let's pick up from there and move on. Not the way they were taught when they left their training paradigm, but we had this fantastic opportunity to create a system of care that didn't exist until then. Give you one example. When a Marine is injured, you take an injured Marine to Navy medical. Now, if the injured Marine has primarily a brain injury and the Navy medical does not have neurosurgery, that does not mean you take them to a neurosurgeon. It means you take them to Navy medical. And that's, I'm not picking on a Navy. I'm just saying this is across the board. Whereas in a system of care, you would not take the brain injured patient to a place that didn't have brain injury treatment capability. You would take them to where they could get the treatment that they needed. And so those were some of the kinds of, of things we learned, passed those lessons on, created this core team of folks, thanks to the Army Surgeon General and Colonel John Holcomb, to put the people in place to start to collect this information, to see the impact of clinical practice guidelines, and continued to build on the experience and the successes of those folks that were literally in the trenches figuring out how to do this better and how to how to save these lives. We had previously talked to General Granger, and he was telling us that at that time, they were also rolling out a DOD electronic medical record into the theater. As the trauma medical director, how did that help you? How did it hinder you? And did it assist you in collecting the data that you needed to make decisions? So it's interesting that that initial effort was basically a primary care record. There were other efforts afoot at Launchstool to build a more pliable, more streamlined version of being able to get the info to those who would be in receipt of the casualties. And General Granger supported both of those endeavors. And it was clunky at first when the best information you had was pretty efficient. Quite honestly, you look at the bandage on someone's abdomen that says seven lap pads and a liver injury written in a Sharpie on their bandage. You kind of get the point. You don't know all the other things that happened or all the other injuries, but boy, you really get something out of that. And we got to the point through this joint patient tracking application that Rhonda and Corey Cornum had helped set up out of, out of Longstool, where we could transmit patient summaries, type hand-typed by surgeons at a desk in the middle of the combat zone to say, hey, here comes Private Smith, and this is what he's got, and this is what we did, and you should watch for this. And so the EMR can be helpful, it can be beneficial, it can be deleterious in terms of consumes your time, does not transmit information. I recall a specific incident where request was made to put flame retardant uniforms on folks going out on patrol because their their vehicles were getting blown up with incendiary IEDs and they were getting burned up. And there were requests to the command in theater to supply millions of dollars worth of these uniforms to the, to these folks. And some people went to the this this outpatient EMR 
and demonstrated that in fact, the rate of burns was no different over the previous two years. But what they didn't understand was the data that's in that EMR includes sunburn and blisters. And it's not necessarily just about major burn injury, having patients having to go to San Antonio, which was skyrocketing at the time. And those Marines and soldiers on the ground knew that this was happening. They wanted a solution and we did everything in our power to provide it with them because we had a trauma registry that we could resort to. We didn't just rely on any old EMR that was very good at documenting colds and immunizations and dental checkups and and things which are very important to commanders and our troops to keep them in the fight. But when you're talking specific to injury, that's where the trauma community comes to the combat zone and says, you know what, we got a trauma system back home. We got a trauma registry back home. We got trauma guidelines back home. We're going to bring that to the war. And I think those things were difference makers. So can you tell us one of your most memorable cases that you were involved in while on this deployment? Yep. So we had a patient that was a triple amputee rocket was launched on our location. This security forces troop was headed to the showers and it landed about three feet in front of him, took off one of his arms, both of his legs. He arrived within about 10 minutes of the injury, blood pressure of 60, asking for morphine. It was really our first major case as the Air Force, assuming the responsibilities from the Army, the 31st Combat Support Hospital, specifically at Balad. And Colonel Steve Hetz walked us through the, this is how you do this. And if it weren't for Steve and his guys, who were at that point, the other guys, far junior to me, and I think that's a really important take-home message, is you learn from those with experience. It has nothing to do with seniority or your rank or any of that stuff, is if they've got the experience, you probably should be paying attention to those guys. That man today is married. He's a professional. He's got a couple of fantastic kids. He was cared for at Walter Reed for over a year, I think, recuperating from his injuries. And it was really the worst casualty that we saw and took care of in the very early going that survived to tell the story. And that individual is infamous amongst that first group of six trauma thoracic and vascular surgeons, orthopedic surgeons who worked on him. You had the opportunity to go back to Afghanistan in 2006, and you served as a joint theater trauma system director at that time. How would you compare the two theaters of war in Iraq and Afghanistan at that time? So I will tell you that the density of operations in Iraq was greater in terms of casualty load, the logistical nightmare of Afghanistan, the tyranny of time and distance was horrible. Just it it was costing people lives. And we unfortunately experienced over time that a single incident can change doctrine, not necessarily for the better. And when they're trying to bring up a Stokes litter off the mountainside in a helicopter and that that's sort of that boom arm breaks off and the casualty dies. Well, we put a moratorium on that. Well, I, I don't know what happened with that boom or had it been maintained properly or was it 
with the circumstances just beyond the control of the of the crew, but it would just just cut off. Period. The end. And there was a, a bunch of that. And some of the things that we would say, well, you know, if we can get a guy to care faster, the more likely it is that they survive. And then you're told, well. The rate limiting step is fuel, helicopters, altitude, whatever the case may be. And uh, without a lot of uh, what I would consider thoughtful consideration of what are our alternatives? Could we do better than this if we put our mind to it? There were some refreshing interactions I had with general officers over my time there when we were dealing specifically with mild traumatic brain injury, who said, you know, guys, this doctor who's come in here to talk to us today about this knows nothing about us, our people and what we do. But he's got a a compelling argument about mild concussion symptoms, action times, what that potentially means to the safety and security of our patrols. And in fact, it occurs to me as the commander of this unit that I know how many hours are on the engine, what the what the tread depth is on the tires of the vehicle. But I don't know a thing about a guy inside that vehicle and how many times has he been involved in an incident where he might've sustained a mild traumatic brain injury. We've got to do better than this. And so those are the refreshing moments that you can run into by being vigilant, persistent, looking for the right opportunities to approach the right folks with the right message in mind. And so I think that's encouraging to our physicians who are going to find themselves for the next several years in uniform, potentially being deployed into a number of environments is that don't don't just give in, be persistent, present the data. You can leave your passion at the door for the most part, but to make sure that the that the point that you're there to make is heard. So you worked with John Holcomb in developing the joint trauma system and followed him as the trauma medical director of the JTS. Tell us about the development of the JTS and how this idea started and how it became reality. So the uh, JTS was uh, the brainchild of uh, Holcomb and Eastridge. So Brian Eastridge was a reservist and he was deployed. He came back to San Antonio post-deployment and relayed to John Holcomb, hey man, I ran into a number of issues. We don't have maybe our assets positioned properly. We could be doing things differently. I didn't really have a bunch of authority that I could do anything with. And the running gag between me and John Holcomb for about five years was that no one realized we had no authority to do any of the things we were doing or say any of the things that we were saying. We just did it because it was the right thing to do. And you walk in and say, I'm here from the joint trauma system. Joint trauma system, we haven't heard of that. Oh, yeah, I work for Elder Granger. And they're like, oh, you work for Elder Granger? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, what, what do you have to say? And, he'd, and he'd, you'd tell them. And then they would feel compelled to comply with that. Back home, he assembled a number of folks from the Army, again, without necessarily the all of the full authority or the perhaps funding line dedicated to their employment. 
But as you produce additional information, we take that burn example and the Nomex as a for instance, or the hypothermia prevention bit, and all of a sudden you've got the attention of people. And I won't forget the meeting we had at the at the Institute of Surgical Research, when we had a visiting three-star Surgeon General from the United States Army come and to visit. We had the opportunity to spend about an hour with him. It ended up being three. And we talked to him about several of these issues. It was just after New Year's. And I'm going to say this would have been 2007 timeframe. And we told him, about the Nomex Uniform Initiative. And he said, wait a minute, he, wait. And he opens his phone and, and he's got a picture on his phone of his child who is deployed in a forward environment, who he does not understand why his child, who is not a pilot, is in a Nomex uniform. And it all comes home to him in that moment got a tear in his eye that without me even knowing it, you guys are protecting my child by these initiatives because you learned from this data, what do I need to do to support this effort? And that was then the catalyst to formalization of that program with funding and personnel and line items and you name it. And it should never be undone. It should be expanded probably to practically every MTF because there are injuries that happen on every military post base around the globe. And if we don't apply these lessons, then when people do deploy or are asked to care for the injured, they're not going to know how to do that in their isolated environment. And that was always our goal was to spread this DOD wide. So how about spreading it even wider than a DOD? Is there anything in the works with the American College of Surgeons to really have a trauma system or a trauma registry that captures all of the data from wartime to what happens here in the United States? So the American College of Surgeons has been exceptionally supportive of our endeavors. And they gave us lock, stock, and barrel access to their trauma systems manual, uh, which we modified for our purposes to make it military specific. Uh, They have combined efforts with us and elements from around the DOD, but I think most especially USU on the knowledge, skills, and abilities that we have today for several disciplines that would be responsible for care of the injured combatant. There have been agreements signed off on by the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs with the American College of Surgeons and reassigned to, to that commitment. The American College of Surgeons sees that their heritage comes from the military. I've given a sort of a casual talk just recently to an American Legion group who really didn't ever put two and two together in terms of transfusion and how transfusion stemmed out of military conflict was perfected in subsequent conflicts, lost in an era when we didn't have conflict and left the transfusion medicine to our civilian colleagues and have resurrected the efforts that got us to where we were. 
I hearken back to that 2001, September 2001 deployment to the combat zone. First time I used whole blood. And the only way I knew how to do it was the 1988 second U.S. revision of the NATO war surgery manual in my pocket because my teachers did not teach me how to use whole blood because their teachers didn't teach them because there was no access to it at the time. It is becoming more the mainstay of trauma resuscitation today. A lot of that comes out of the military. A lot of that comes out of the joint trauma system, the combined efforts of our military and civilian colleagues, and that kind of collaboration you can't say enough about. So you've done extensive research while on active duty and in your civilian career. What would you consider the most impactful project which you've been personally involved with? I would have to say it really revolves around whole blood. By necessity, with only red cells available to us to care for those first 56 injured combatants, that was not going to be sufficient. And so that spurred this, how do we do this? What is this whole blood thing about? Who can I transfuse? What kind of blood to, et cetera. And then as you look further into a well-documented civilian environment, the death rate related to hemorrhage because of lack of blood products in a pre-hospital environment, that's an artificial state that we have created for ourselves. And so we, we took that quite seriously. 40% of the population in the, the United States lives in urban America. 60% lives in the rural zones of America. And without access to care within a half an hour, which is the vast majority of places in the vast majority of states, uh, those people bleed to death from potentially preventable hemorrhage injuries. Brian Eastridge proved that in his uh, combat zone study. They're working very hard through CENTER, the Coalition for National Trauma Research, to demonstrate that on the civilian side of the equation, the potentially preventable death from hemorrhage could be mitigated potentially by pre-hospital transfusion. And I've spent the better part of the last 15 years trying to make inroads into that. When I retired from the military, there were no pre-hospital whole blood programs. There were no really whole blood programs at all. Cut break, go to 2016, and there's whole blood in one pre-hospital or maybe two pre-hospital settings, three or four trauma centers in this country. Now, six years on, there's 100 programs at hospitals. We have 40 EMS agencies in South Texas with whole blood in these rural counties. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of other programs around the country. You want to find yourself in an austere environment, just be in New York City during rush hour and try to get from the point of injury to definitive care and you're, it, you may as well be in Uvalde, Texas, because you're that far away. So, so that's the lasting impact that I would like to say that we learned in the combat zone. We tried to apply that lesson in our civilian setting, and I, I think it's taking hold. What would you say is the most pressing research question facing trauma and critical care, particularly as it applies to combat casualty care? What do we need to answer now? I think it's all about resuscitation. Who needs it? 
and when do you say we've achieved it? And there are a ton of markers out there. You can get really sophisticated with some things that you can figure out weeks later. Oh yeah, they were resuscitated three weeks ago. But some easy answers that are rapid that can be assessed by the person maybe with the lowest level of experience in resuscitation. Those are the things that we need, the, I think, the biggest help with. That's going to be, you know, I have friends and partners in Norway who look at this problem and they just look at oil rigs in the North Sea and you can't fly out there a lot of times. And it's basically a military industrial complex and people get injured in the hemorrhage. So how do you, how do you deal with that? And how do you train that oil rig medic to recognize that this patient needs resuscitation. You can't solve anything else until you have live patients. Both with the Nomex Uniform Initiative and the Whole Blood Initiative, I warned people that you may see an increase in death in the hospital because if people make it to you alive, they may then die subsequently the same people who never would have lived to get to you in the first place, but now they do. And that harkens to the Korean War with vascular repairs, patients sicker than anybody had ever been able to resuscitate getting into renal failure. Trying to solve that with extra fluid resuscitation in Vietnam, creating Da Nang lung or ARDS. Diseases of survivorship, as I would say, and I think that if you can shift the curve of death anywhere to the, the left, if you give our teams more time, we're going to come up with the next disease of survivorship that we're going to need to solve until eventually we get it all figured out. But I think that just at this point, taking the untrained individual or less trained than, than you guys are and give them the right tools that say, oh yeah, needs additional resuscitation, needs this thing. And if that's blood, if that's a shock drug, whatever is on the horizon, those are the things I think are most important to us today. So you have extensive experience in performance improvement with your work as the trauma medical director, the joint theater trauma system director, and the joint trauma system director. Since your military retirement, you've worked at the University of Texas, San Antonio, and you now serve as the performance improvement committee chair for the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. Tell us about that and how is it essential for trauma care in the United States? So truth be told, my, my time in the American College of Surgeons as the uh, trauma performance improvement director has passed and I have passed that baton on. But the importance of that is if you don't learn the lessons, if you wait for something to go wrong before you try to take a corrective action, then you've waited too long. You need to think about things in a different way. And I, I oftentimes use a sports analogy for this, which is if you're playing the game of American football and quarterback takes the snap, rolls out of the pocket, linebacker is trying to kill them. They fling the ball into the corner of the end zone. The tight end comes down with it with one hand and the referee signals touchdown. Then they have to go under the hood because there's a challenge. 
and it takes them five minutes to dissect the video and they come out and they put their hands in the air indicating in fact the call on the field was right well it's fantastic people they got the points they scored that touchdown everyone's overjoyed that's not the way the play was drawn up the play was drawn up so that the quarterback would never be flushed from the pocket. No one would be breathing down their neck. And that the catch would be made in the middle of the end zone with both hands and no video review necessary. And that to me is the essence of performance improvement. You might win the day, you might get that touchdown, but that is not the way you intended to do it. And that's where I think that the greatest opportunities lie is that if if we let the system limit how we do things, if we take an extra 20 minutes for a tail-to-tail transfer from one helicopter to another helicopter because we have to switch all of the equipment out because the commander at the sending unit is responsible by serial number for that monitor and that IV pump, and the casualty ends up paying an extra price in a cold weather environment, waiting to have this monitor and a pump removed and another one put on because that's what the system says we need to do. We're missing the boat. We're not taking care of the patient. We're taking care of the system. And that's that's not the way to go about this. So one of your jobs is the deputy director of the Military Health Institute at UT Health. What is the Military Health Institute and what does it do? So it is a, an organization that USAA has underwritten and sponsored at UT Health San Antonio. And its purpose is to interact with the groups that would benefit from military-civilian collaboration, be that students who are on scholarship, be that trainees, medics, Navy medics getting their hands on, Air Force courses getting their hands on, the residency program mix, the military interest groups amongst the graduate students working together with military and civilian partners in collaboration related to research where we can find inroads to benefit the research initiatives of each other and to increase that not only collaboration, but to the benefit of our veterans. Not every person within the Military Health Institute is a veteran. Many are, but the programs that they've worked on, Alan Peterson, a psychologist, has really worked so hard on PTSD and suicide prevention. They've got multi-institutional, multi-state research projects, millions of dollars in research funds to root out these causes of PTSD and suicide, try to bring those things to a close, to a solution is just one of those aspects. We've got a Purple Heart recipient who acts as a sort of an executive director, if you will, in that in that mix, a Marine veteran injured in, in Iraq. And his interest is in seeing a spread of the pre-hospital transfusion initiatives pioneered here or maybe honed here in San Antonio to a greater population benefiting 
veterans, their families, their their beneficiaries. We work very closely with huge civilian funded civilian research organizations. We work very closely with the Institute of Social Research, for Carnegie Medical Center, the 59th Medical Wing, among other entities. We have folks in our schools of other health professions, from nursing to paramedic, that rely on the combined military-civilian exposure. And so the Military Health Institute is not necessarily unique to San Antonio. We have partners in Pittsburgh, in Mayo Clinic, and at Johns Hopkins as well, who work in a similar vein to see to it that the needs of military research can be met within our civilian paradigm of of care. Fast forwarding 50 to 100 years from now, when the history books are written about this time, what would you want people to remember about your legacy of your 25-year military career? That we created more leaders that we created a group of folks that didn't hesitate to call into question the doctrine. On more than one occasion, I walked into a room, been met with quite negative commentary and asked, well, what came first, the good idea or the doctrine? Because just because it's non-doctrinal doesn't make it a bad idea. Maybe we need to fix the doctrine. And that's what I would like to have folks take home is that for, for medical people, understand logistics and don't be held back by the doctrine. We've been speaking with retired Air Force Colonel, Dr. Don Jenkins. Don, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on War Docs, and thanks for your service to the nation. I really appreciate that, and I thank you very much for the opportunity to share those experiences. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.